It appears to be snowing in both Charlotte, North Carolina and Missoula, Montana right now. Happening now, you're watching. Oh man, I've totally messed myself up. Happening now. What do we even say? It's the EdTech Situation Room, ladies and gentlemen, episode 289 across North America, around the world. I think we're supposed to say things like that. Um, it is April the 12th, 2023. It's almost tax day. And I'm Wes Fryer coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina, where it is not indeed snowing, although my virtual background makes it look like it is. I think that it's still ugh, my my the hand of my I think it's 81 degrees. So um, I'm going to bet it's a little bit cooler than that for the nerd of the north, Dr. Neifer, who uh, has probably a large stack of books behind him, but it looks like he's in the North Pole today. Yeah, so funny weather here. Um, Sunday was our first 70 degree, degree, degree day, and then Monday was our first 80 degree day of 2023, and this morning it snowed. So we have that going for us here in beautiful Missoula, Montana, where I am the executive director of the Montana Digital Academy, Montana State Virtual School, located on the beautiful University of Montana campus, right here in uh, uh, mixed weather Missoula, Montana. And, um, we're, I, we need spring. And there's just, there's just no other way about it. I felt like that my soul was, 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 was reengaged with the weather on, on Sunday and Monday. And then this morning we actually had a, a, a guest in our office, an executive director from a neighboring state who visited. And, uh, sure enough, um, you know, the weather was beautiful on, on Monday night. And then, um, uh, <laughs> this morning started snowing, but I don't think we're here to talk about the weather, although we tend to week by week. Dr. Fryer, what is the EdTech situation room all about? Well, it has almost become the This Week in AI for Schools show, but uh, for 288 previous episodes, we have gathered online to talk about the tech news and to shoot those through an educational lens or prism, depending on your metaphor, and talk about how that might relate to our lives. And so we have a Google Doc, actually it's the second one because the first one has the first 200 episodes, so 89, no, 108, no, just 89, 89 episodes, uh, including tonight's. You can find on edtechsr.com slash links. Actually, you can link to them both there. But we've got topics and a ton of articles as always. Oh my gosh, <laughs> the AI list. <laughs> um, so social media, security, privacy, copyright, intellectual property, uh, like war which we could also just call uh, military China. I'm not sure. Uh, artificial intelligence, the internet of things, Apple, Google, geeks of the week. We really could just do AI and miscellaneous and that would make it a little bit faster. Yeah. yeah no kidding. <laughs> that's that's kind of what the topics feel like. Well, Dr. Fryer, um, I feel like we should talk about some other stuff um, uh, just because uh you know, if we're going to if we're going to have an AI podcast, we might as well call it an AI podcast. But that's not what we have here. So, where would you like to start first this week? You know, uh, I want to go to an IoT and uh, hey, but wait, Jason, I have a real tech hardware article. I think you'll be proud of me for doing this one for Apple. I'll do that one first, and then we'll do IoT. So, this is Ars Technica on April tenth. Uh, analysts say Mac sales are down forty percent as post pandemic PC sales slump continues. Uh, we have reported previously about a variety of different hardware sales. And so um, Apple was just really, you know, doing some incredible sales. I wonder if this has to do with, you know, lots of folks getting M1 and M2 
processors and, and not finding themselves you know, needing more. Um, according to the article, Mac revenue reported by Apple was up 25% year over year as recently as September, um, defining this, defying the sales decline that was hitting every other PC company at the time. And so uh, now that has had a downturn. I don't, I don't think I'm going to be buying a new Mac. I don't know, actually, I, because I don't have an admin password on this school when I would like to <laughs> have my own machine. Um, yeah. But um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not sure what would, would uh, account for that. Other than the fact that there's a ton of purchases, not only because of the pandemic, but because Apple came out with some phenomenal hardware. So do you have any theories to explain the downturn? You have a couple thoughts there that that may or may not be uh, pertinent to the conversation. Uh, the first one is I agree with your analysis, Wes, that I think if you bought a M1 Mac, you're extremely happy right now. And I would say that um, I tend to buy my – when I buy Mac hardware, I tend to buy it pretty spec'd out. And so – um, you know, I'm looking for the 16 gigabytes of RAM and I don't necessarily go with a lot of storage because I, I tend to, to rely a lot on the cloud, but, um, but you know, that's an example of something. And I ended up uh, last year buying a, uh, MacBook Air M1 that I, I picked up on, it wasn't quite on clearance, but I put together some coupons and there was a special deal and I had some credit card of points that I all put together. And so I was able to buy it for well under $500 and it was the most incredible purchase I've ever made because it feels as fast um, because of the unified storage and, uh, with the memory, it feels as fast as the MacBook uh, M1 Pro that I've used and also the Mac one uh, desktop that I've used that has 16 gigs of RAM in it. And so um, not that I'm saying that if, you know, if there was a cheap upgrade available, I w- wouldn't have gone with the cheap upgrade. But the bottom line is, is that I just don't see these platforms slowing down anytime soon. And I do know, I have read some analysis, and this was mostly in the first year of the M1, saying that the unified storage is problematic because at some point, you know, SSDs have a shelf, or I'm not a shelf life, but a wear life to them, and yada, yada, yada. But, you know, for the price they're, they're selling this hardware for, it's ridiculous. And so I think that's part of it. The other thing I would also say, too, is that in general, I've noticed that used hardware um, is trended down dramatically in price in, in the last 12 months. And I think that's exactly what you were talking about, Wes, that there were so many purchases during the pandemic that there just doesn't seem to be a lot of people that are interested in um uh, or, well, keeping to their older hardware. And I'll give you an example of this. Um, I keep a Mac, or not a Mac, but a, a, P, a Windows laptop around the house that, um, you know, I'll put Linux onto or Chrome OS Flex or, or you know, most of the time I keep it, you know, with Windows 10 or I think this one has Windows 11 on it. This is a, um, a Lenovo uh, X380, or I'm sorry, 390. So this would be a an approximately three-year-old um a laptop. So this is uh, uh, just just before the pandemic started. And what's impressive about this, and I think this was an off lease uh, that I purchased, it still has the um, warranty left on it. It had a four year warranty purchased along with it. And I was able to pick this. It's got 16 gigs of RAM and an i5 chip. 
um, and some some extra features. And um, I was able to pick this up for about $120 on eBay, which is like a tenth of the price that this went for when it sold new uh, three years ago. And I do think that in the next two or three years, you're going to continue to see depressed prices in used hardware because there was so much hardware purchased uh, during uh, the pandemic that there's just not going not gonna to be a lot of need for upgrade. And a lot of people picked up, you know, huge stocks of new laptops. They're going to be able to get rid of uh, uh, ones that were purchased pre-pandemic for a song. So what I would give, you know, if uh, advice to tech directors, especially if you do do a lot of work in used hardware um, uh, to help, you know, stock up your labs or one-to-one program, that looking around right now, you might be able to find some absolutely incredible deals. And, you know, for me, um, you know, Microsoft makes it so easy now just to download Windows from its website. And if there's ever been a license associated with the computer, um, uh, uh, then uh, it's easy to get Windows on there. And then Chrome OS Flex, which works wonderfully on this laptop, I might add, is also a wonderful option there, too. Wow. Well, and the article also points out that, you know, we just continue to do an increasing amount of our work on our our smartphones um, and sometimes on tablets. But uh, that's been uh, part of the dynamic of declining PC sales. um, And that's probably not going to let up anytime soon. Well, let me ask you about that, Wes. I mean, you know, I guess... I'm uh, it, I'm the guy that has, you know, multiple pieces of hardware, so I, I'm not necessarily a good use case. But do you find that you're doing work on your phone? Uh, I'm doing a lot of media creation. You know, I do almost yeah. – I, I, what did I – I made something ridiculous, like eight videos over spring break that I put on YouTube or something. Um, maybe it was less – more like six, but anyway. Um, so, no. I mean, I'm not – we are going to go to, did I tell you we're going to Canvas at our, with our school? Um, oh, no, it. interesting. Yeah, I hope we're going to do it this summer. I think it's still up in the air whether we're going to delay a year or we'll do it this summer. I hope we do it this summer. Um, and I've heard that grading-wise that, 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 that Canvas has a good mobile app, or I don't know if that's true or not, but that's that's what I had heard. I've heard that too, yeah. Um, so, but but no, I'm not. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm creating media, but it's really reading stuff and you know, sharing stuff and, and creating media. So, and then I'm, you know, I'm, I'm reading on my iPad, usually uh Flipboard, the Kindle, um, which incidentally did, I don't, I have an article about this, but did you see that uh in addition to cutting out everybody else's API access, Flipboard's cut out. And so you can't follow a Twitter list on Flipboard anymore. Yeah, I did see that your link on that. And that's yeah. just... Well, I mean, there's a, I think there actually have some articles about the Twitter drama today, and maybe this is a good segue to that. But um, the yes, I saw that, which is a terrible mistake, uh, because I feel like that was a really uh, clever and smart use of Twitter. I would also say that I've noticed that some of the third-party software I use to manage social media, and I do social media management for uh, 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 a couple of nonprofits and advise a couple other people to do the same, and as it turns out, um, uh, things like tagging people has stopped working in some third-party tools. And I just don't know why that makes any sense in context of, you know, it was a way to use Twitter uh, in your use case with flip, Flipboard uh, in, a, in a nuanced way that, that kept Twitter relevant for you. And in the case of social media posting, like it made ease of use so I could schedule posts. And um, what the software told me was that Twitter no longer allows scheduled posts to tag people. And it's like, what on earth 
uh, is that it, what on earth does that accomplish? Do? Yeah. yeah. What, what what's the end game there uh, in 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 taking this particular functionality away? It's completely ridiculous. On the good side, uh, when I did tweet about that, I heard back from one of the co-founders of Flipboard uh, on Mastodon, and they um, do have Mastodon working today on Flipboard, and soon it will be supporting lists. And I've just invested a ton of hours building lists of organizations and people on Twitter that is super, super useful. Um, And so I've done a little bit of that on Mastodon and need to continue. And my friend Miguel Gulen has shared shared some of his lists, and I'm going to try to import. And maybe somebody's going to figure out ways to more readily share them. But I think that's that's an important way we can be filters for each other is by, hey, here's my ed tech list. Hey, here's my cooking list. Here's my birding list or, you know, whatever things we're into. Well, and Wes, I follow your Yoda list on Flipboard. Like that's a because it, it was you used a really to. good. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's correct. I used to follow it on Flip uh, Flipboard, and that was a really easy way for me because you're a good curator, right? And you there's a certain point of view that you tend to follow on your Yoda list, and um, it was very useful for me because I didn't have to go find those folks myself. Um, and I also, it, it was almost like it was pre-vetted and there, there's, you know, there's a lot of voices out there in the ed tech world. And I'm not saying that any of them are better than others, but the bottom line is, is that if you can you find someone that you generally agree with and they've made a list, it's a pretty good way to do that. I would also note that I myself have a Montana media, um, uh, uh, Twitter list that is basically my newsfeed. And, um, I had that in Flipboard as well. And now that's gone. And, um, uh, that was basically my Montana newspaper. It was a quick wave in 10 minutes to flip through, you know, top stories in um, uh, Montana news. And it meant I didn't have to go to 10 different websites to get that. And it just really just makes no sense. And and uh, there's just no reason behind that that I can think of that benefits Twitter. Yeah, the that that Yoda's list is the first one I think I ever built. So it has 93 members and 76 followers. And yeah, now I've got to not go directly onto Twitter in order to view it. And I guess that's what they're they're saying, or probably what Elon's thinking is, you know, I guess ads and whatever else you're going to see. But yeah, uh, let's do a quick IoT one, and then we can jump into the rabbit hole if we want to. Because I'm curious on your take. I know that you're. Uh, quite affectionate for Apple devices and uh, smart speakers and maybe even security. And this was a rather depressing article. Uh, so this is, again, Ars Technica. Um, this is from March the 29th, 2023. Google and ADT have a new security system with lots of subscription fees. And I'm interested in this because we have an investment in Google smart speakers, and I have done a few cameras, and I've wondered about, um, you know, what else uh, you know, do we do we need to, to do additional things? And so <clears throat> this basically sounds like, you know, a, a DIY setup from the standpoint that and I'm sure you can still get an integrator or somebody to come set this up for you. But <clears throat> it's kind of an a la carte. Or I've got a an Elvis song I listen to and eat a la carte. What is it called? T-bone a la carte. Anyway, I'm. A la carte. You can go a la carte with all of these different devices and these different subscriptions. And it's very interesting that the the writer here, uh, Ron um, Amato, Amadeo, uh, Ron says Amato. That, Amato, okay, uh, it notes that, you know, even though you are going to be able to control some things from the, you know, Google Nest and 
from the Google Home, um, the ADT app is the main way that you're going to be interfacing and, and controlling this. And <clears throat> it's doing away with Nest. And, and anyway, the article talks a little bit about, well, and it, it wasn't just this one. There were, there were some other ones that it linked to as well. Um, you know, whether it's not no more work with Nest, you know, would work with Google Assistant. And the, the language has changed in terms of what you've invested in. I haven't gotten a smart thermostat yet. I was wanting, I think, to get uh, a Nest thermostat, but um, I, I've, I'm, a, I'm a little saddened because the general idea, well, and the, the comment thread is interesting here too, because so many people talking about, you know, canceled products and, you know, unless it's Gmail docs or maps, you know, don't don't count on the product being there for Google. So I don't know, to what extent has Google's, I don't know, less than 100% buy-in of IoT shaped your own ideas about what you want to do? Because you've, you've experimented with not only Google and Apple, but also Amazon. So yeah. as with many things, it's good to, to visit with somebody who's actually, you know, tried and, and used these different platforms instead of just read about them. So yeah. what, what, do you, what do you think? Well, I mean, I like the Apple stuff probably best, but it has really weird limitations. And that's the part that, that um, I, you know, I don't often run up into, I mean, if you're mostly in Apple's ecosystem, it doesn't make any sense to go to another one, right? Just buy the stuff that Apple will sell you and, you know, you'll be happier that way because if you can stay within an ecosystem, it's better that you do. But um, so recently my wife, my wife and I completed a, a long project and we had our kitchen gutted and, and, and rebuilt from scratch Long time coming. Uh, we saved up during the pandemic from our lack of travel and were able to invest in, in a new kitchen. And um, we decided to, um, you know, going along with our, you know, we wanted nice stuff in our kitchen. We bought an Apple home, uh, a HomePod speaker, a big HomePod speaker, the new model that came out this year. And it's got a lot of cool stuff on it. It sounds absolutely amazing. And it's really easy. It's one button click from your iPhone or your iPad to put up audio on there. Syncs really well with the iPad. If I'm cooking and I'm watching a YouTube video to watch cook uh, or watch a cooking video. It's easy to do that. Sounds great. It, it, it easily, uh, uh, carries over the sound. The HomePod, uh, has a lot of, uh, advanced features. So it kind of laser beam forms your sound. So it, it, it senses the room around it and we put it on a shelf where it, it, it's, it's got a 360, um, sound, uh, push out, but, uh, generally speaking, um, you know, we don't need it to go back into the cabinet. It just needs to go forward and it does that really well. And it sounds amazing, way better than the first generation, um, uh, uh, Madam A speaker, um, that we had, uh, in the, in the kitchen, but it doesn't allow you to Bluetooth to it. And so, um, we, and it's just weird because I do have other devices in the house that are not Apple devices and there's no way to broadcast to it. Um, there's some hacky ways of getting some kind of music to it, but it's just not, it's just not a good thing. Um, and that stuff frustrates me to absolutely no end. And I will also say that I expect Siri, um, Madam A, and I don't know if Cortana is ever going to exist in any real form again. I expect them to get a lot better with generative AI. I think that those technologies together are going to make a big difference. But uh, a Siri feels less functional than Madam A does. And I feel like it's got less options. And it tells me quite a bit 
that uh, it can't do that, or you're going to need your phone for that, or I don't understand that, and that part's pretty frustrating. So I, I like it. Um, I also feel like that under the notion of IoT, that it's better off if I stay in the Apple architecture because I feel like there's more security built into it. I don't know if that's true or not, um, but I would feel that as well. Anything else you'd like to hit before we jump into the rabbit hole? Um, yeah, let's do the social media stuff for a couple minutes. Um, so I'll start off with, uh, um, well, there, there, it's, been, it's been back and forth over the last uh, a couple weeks. Uh, NPR and Elon Musk have been in a, a, a war back, back and forth. And um, it, it's, if at first Elon Musk decided that he was going to go through and, and my understanding is that he's personally judging uh, the, the different media sources to determine if they were state uh, actors or not using Wikipedia articles. Yeah. Using Wikipedia articles, which that part I don't care as much about, but, um, and, um, you know, NPR is, does receive a small part of its funding from the corporation of public broadcasting, which receives a small part of its funding from the federal government. And also of the, um, you know, I think there's like 60 or 70 different uh, public radio systems in, the, in the, the country, and many of those receive funding from a local state as well. For example, I believe that some money uh, from the state goes to Montana Public Radio, which is the uh, uh, affiliate, uh, NPR affiliate in western Montana. Um, so he decided to market with, as, as state-funded uh, media. And that in itself, you know, the label is problematic, but they've also started deprioritizing um, stories that are state funded because they're considered to be propaganda. And so they can't end up in the for you column and they can't trend and they can't do all sorts of things that are pretty important if you are a property on Twitter. So lots of of. of Pushy response, lots of, 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 uh, NPR reporters explaining why this is not right and explaining why it's not true. Um, I still don't understand why government funded media is, is worthy of a label, but corporate funded media is not. But let's ignore that for a second. So today, um, NPR ratcheted up and said, well, if we can't get a fair shake on here, we're done. So they have uh, stopped updating all official channels um, on Twitter. It includes their main account. They also have several sub-accounts, things like the Tiny Desk Concerts, and uh, a lot of their prominent podcasts have their own channels, and they're not. They're just leaving. They did allow the reporters to make their own call on whether they would stay on there or not, but it is my understanding that they've asked the reporters not to share their Twitter handles on 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 the air anymore. If you listen to NPR like I do, that's a it's a it's a refrain. Every twenty to thirty minutes, you'll hear what a what a reporter or a, an anchor's uh, handle is. So I guess I'll start with I again I don't I mean it, if you if you take the surface of this right there there's some logic in dividing up state funded media versus 
um, uh, other funded media uh, in from the standpoint of, yes, there are plenty of media arms of governments that are propaganda machines, but I don't consider NPR to be that. They, they also try to do that to the BBC, too, not understanding that, yes, the BBC gets its money from the government, but they collect the tax from the people specifically to fund the media. It's not like it's government propaganda and they are quite separate from the government. So I've talked enough. Dr. Fryer, what are, what is your thoughts on this? Well, this is the spillover of the culture war into technology headlines and, and the, the uses of technology to further, you know, culture war ends. Um, I think that the goal of trying to help clarify, clarify, you know, topics, it's important. You know, for instance, during COVID, uh, we would see YouTube, I think Facebook, I think maybe Twitter, but I, I know, you know, YouTube for sure. Um, if it was something referencing COVID, you know, that you would have some links to like a CDC website or some things that were considered mainstream, um, so that people were hopefully going to be able to get to some more, uh, mainstream and arguably reliable and, and valid information, um, which they may or may not have been getting on YouTube. I think, unfortunately, at this point, you know, it, it, it does definitely hurt NPR to not use Twitter, but journalists are really, really key. My perception is that one of the reasons why, I mean, Twitter, Twitter has been wonderful and it continues to be wonderful for me as an educator, you know, connecting with other teachers, being able to get feedback, being able to just, you know, literally see and experience pe- other people's ideas and, and links serving as filters for each other, just like you were talking about the Twitter list. I mean, there's, it's just wonderful. It's been really, really great. But I think the reason why Twitter has such, has had such an outsized impact in our society and our culture is because so many journalists have been on it and many of them are glued to it. And so when something trends on Twitter, it can make the jump from social media onto mainstream media. I really think the tipping point for Twitter in terms of its viability is what journalists choose to do. And so I want to say kudos to NPR. I have not had whatever it is, um, just, you know, guts or whatever to just go ahead and say ditch Twitter. I mentioned on the show a few weeks ago before spring break, I was at our state ed tech conference, NC Ties, and it was wonderful. And I enjoyed being able to share on Twitter and connect with other teachers and see the back channel of what was going on. That wasn't on Mastodon. I don't know a single, I didn't hear a single keynote speaker mention anything about Mastodon. And I don't know that I saw anybody else using the official conference hashtags on Mastodon. It just was not a thing. There wasn't an overwhelming number of of educators there using Twitter. Uh, There were certainly some. So anyway, I, I, I really do think that we would be better off without a centrally controlled, you know, social media platform like Twitter and, and, and a Fediverse based model like Mastodon, um, would be healthier for us to be on. Um, but anyway, it's just, it's, it's Elon's um, perspectives on the culture war, and and it's absolutely false to try to say that NPR is equal to Russia today, because yeah, that is absolutely it's, it's not, those not. are not the same thing, and that that is that is what he conflated by making this decision. You know, the spiteful way that he has removed some individual reporters, um, just continues to do things that are just really really ugly, rude, 
junior high-ish and just not appropriate. Um, I mean, frankly, it's startling. I mean, I really did not have much of an idea uh, about his politics or even his personality or his way of treating people. And maybe that was because I was naive and had my head in the sand because I'm sure I could have, you know, I think I even did read a biography or listen to a biography of him, but it's sad. And I, I'm not ready to give up Twitter yet, but I think that NPR um, taking a stand is important. And if more journalists yeah. follow NPR's lead, I think that will be a further demise of Twitter's relevance because without lots and lots of journalists, I don't think Twitter has the, the gravitas and the power that it has had and continues yep. to have. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and, you know, on that note about journalists on Twitter too, I mean, that's, that's a good percentage of my newsfeed, uh, on my Montana news list is that, and, and right now during, uh, a, a, a pretty significant legislative session in the state of Montana, you know, that's, that's the breaking news, right? Like, uh, you know, a state like Montana with a relatively low population, we just have over a million people here in the state. And also because there are so many less journalists than there were in the state, uh, 10 and certainly 20 years ago, you know, a lot of the breaking news doesn't end up on websites. It ends up on Twitter. And sometimes that stuff doesn't end up on a formal news site anyways. So there's been a lot of big votes in the legislature in the last week. And there are three or four reporters that are on the ground at the legislature. I wish there was 20 or 30 of them, but the fact there are three and four there means we, we have some eyes and ears out. And you get to hear about, I mean, unless you watch it yourself, which, um, you know, I do watch quite a bit of legislative coverage, uh, uh, live coverage when it has to do with, with my job and, and education pieces. But otherwise, I have to rely on journalists to do that. And it makes a real difference when you can, uh, you know, get the, the kind of live skinny as it happens. And yeah, I just, you know, I, I'm not going to disagree wholly with the notion that maybe Twitter was overweight with employees. Um, I do think that a lot of the departments he cut, there are going to be long-term consequences to the platform. I'm not even just talking about the practical stuff like engineers, developers, security people, but, you know, a lot of the safety and trust teams that, 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 uh, were helping to try to create Twitter to be a, uh, you know, a a a a warm place. I, I'm not even sure what I'm looking for as, as an adjective there. Uh, but, uh, you know, they, they're an important part of that in my humble opinion. And, you know, a lot of that has gone too, but yeah, I think we're going to see some pretty serious consequences from this. And, you know, um, I, I think Twitter has always been super interesting. They made a lot of decisions in the early days, um, you know, to block third party, uh, apps, for example, and make that a harder process in the early days. Now, I think that most third party apps have completely stopped working, or at least many of the third party apps have. But yeah, I, it's just disappointing because I do think that there's a lot of, and I, and I haven't left it yet, and I'm not, I'm not going to Mastodon on a regular basis. I go there sometimes. I probably should go more. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just disappointed in the direction it's going into. These articles about NPR and Twitter having this tiff also reference, and I've seen this before, too, uh, that Twitter's official standard response to many, many media inquiries is a poop emoji. Yeah, yeah. That is so abundantly yeah. unprofessional. I mean, that is nothing we would ever allow a student to do uh, that, that you would ever expect a professional organization to do. And that kind of childlike, unprofessional ugliness by itself, if not for anything else, you know, just it's, 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 it's a sign of a toxically sick company 
Yeah, from from a leadership standpoint. So yeah. I think, you know, we've got a lot of value in Twitter because of the investments that we've made and the people in terms of like lists and all these things we've built and, and just the people that are on it. But uh, the good news is Mastodon is very supportive of RSS. And as I've built, for instance, my news list, um, there's some different folks that have, have built some bots that are able to grab RSS feeds from news organizations. And even though that news organization may not be posting to Mastodon, it's it was and then we're going to sideline here for just a little bit, but uh, I love RSS, you know, Google reader, w- probably the best product that Google's ever had that they've completely killed in my opinion. Um, I thought in the early days of web two, which was like 2005, six, something like that. I thought that we were going to be teaching everybody about RSS. And I, I think that it may be because it wasn't as commercializable um, in terms of advertisements and things like that. I, I think that I, I would love to see an article and somebody really elaborating on that. Why did Google kill Google Reader? But I think that they wanted to monetize the news feed uh, to a greater degree than they could with that technology. But Mastodon is an open source technology, very supportive of RSS. You can turn any you know kind of feed into an RSS feed. And so Anyway, yeah, it is a little bit geeky, and maybe that was part of it, too. Um, they wanted to make things that were a little bit easier to subscribe to. But, hey, Dr. Neifer, we've got to hear about this Arkansas article because I had not heard about this, and this is cha-cha-ching, or what, what's your right sound yeah. effect? for Breaking news on the Ethics Situation Room. CNN reports, and they've actually updated this article as recently as two hours ago, that – Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders has signed a bill called the Social Media Safety Act, which starts to take effect in September. And it essentially says that uh, companies operating in a social media space um, require those services to verify the ages of all new users. And if the ages, if the users are under 18, to obtain a parent's consent before allowing them to create an account. To perform the age checks, the age relies on third-party companies to verify users' personal information, such as a driver's license or photo ID. And Governor Sanders said at the press conference that while social media can be a great tool and a wonderful resource, it can have a massive negative impact on our kids. And uh, this is the follow-up to, we mentioned the Utah law that does something uh, very similar um, in, in an earlier episode. Um, but the bottom line is is that... I mean, this is the tech correction that we've been talking about. And it goes back to, you know, really the 2016 election and on where there seems to be an extraordinary amount of 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 sea changes against social media platforms. And what's interesting about that to me, of course, is that, um, well, I mean, it does depend on how you define social media uh, and um, they did end up uh, negotiating back and forth on the bill because they did uh, uh, have to amend it to create several categories of exemptions from the age verification requirements, um, including media companies exclusively offer subscription content, uh, social media platforms that permit users to generate short clips of video of dancing voiceovers or other acts of entertainment and uh, which sounds like TikTok to me, and also uh, companies that exclusively offer video gaming focused uh, social networking were were ultimately exempted. Um, I also think that uh, you know it's just it's hard for me to define social media really because um, you know a lot of people define YouTube as social media, for example, and to me that's more of a media platform than it is social media. 
but at a certain point you just start to parse words, right? And it's not really a meaningful uh, piece either direction. But um, I, I guess I'd start with Wes, uh, you having been a parent of um, uh, recent teenagers, for lack of a better term, and you know those those kids grew up in the social media era. Is this something? I mean, what what age would you have allowed your your kids to to sign up for a social media account? Well, we did have some get some accounts, uh, you know, before age thirteen, um, but you know, and I'm sh- I'll probably I think one of our children had a had a Finsta, right, which is uh, you know a, a, a separate Instagram. It wasn't the one publicly known by the parent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one of one of our children that got a Twitter account before, with my knowledge, uh, before thirteen, uh, came clean about birthdays. And, uh, they, they, they disabled the account. Oh, you lied about your birthday. So you can't have access to this account anymore. Uh, sometimes I share that with, uh, with students and I encourage my, our kids, Hey, wait, wait till, you know, you're, you're of age. I mean, I think the intent of encouraging good parenting is, is there, uh, or not there. It's silly. I think it's a, it, I think we do want folks to be involved and engaged parents. We need to be in discussion about, not only social media, but just web use in general. Uh, the internet today in 2023 is not the internet of 1995 or whenever, you know, we started to, to get online. Um, I think that the legal, this has also become a bandwagon for legislators, um, you know, to, to, to bash different things. And so bashing big tech, uh, and especially social media has, has become, you know, something I think that, uh, politicians are, are saying that they're going to score points with their constituents. On a related note, I'll mention, because we've talked about this, and I went ahead and sent, I, I sent, I left a voicemail for our uh, United States Senator who's appointed Rachel to the Air Force Academy and uh, thanked him for that, uh, Thom Tillis. But I also said, hey, I'm a, a teacher and follow AI and, and big tech news a lot. Do you have any kind of advisory group that you have with constituents, you know, to talk about big tech and AI? And I got um, a phone message today from Washington, D.C., from a staffer on a judiciary committee. Uh, I've got to return an email. Um, I don't know. I think that was kind of cool. I don't know whether this is going to get ahead anywhere, but we've talked about this before. Yes, we want to stay abreast of the issues, and these are good things to talk about, but we also need to think about constructive legislation. And I wouldn't put simply a ban I think what we need first probably are privacy laws and that's going to need to be number one because that is going to uh, impact, you know, AI and and what we're talking about. Ironically, it might hurt us as we compete against the, the the, the Japanese against the Chinese um, in terms of, you know, they, they just probably won't respect many rights at all in terms of their ingestion of, of, uh, information about people and all that kind of thing. But yeah, these kinds of bills, I don't see them having a tremendous impact. Um, one of the things that another article points out though, is it really could have an impact. I think we said this before on the show on anonymity in the web, and that can be important in different contexts. This particular law doesn't go as far as the Utah law in stating that parents need to have access to all of their their children's accounts, all their private messages, you know, everything. But uh, requiring, as this Arkansas bill appears to do, um, age verification will probably be like a scan of a driver's license or something like that. And so that will have an impact on anonymity. And we could probably just talk about that for the rest of the show. Anonymous bot accounts have been a 
a significant problem in the weaponization of social media and the ways in which Twitter specifically, but also YouTube, you know, algorithms have, have been utilized. And maybe, you know, I, don't, I think we mentioned this on the show, Mid Journey discontinued their free trial accounts because of abuse yes. and yeah, trying to slow that today. down. And so I think that if prominent social media platforms do require some verification, I set up a new YouTube channel. I've talked about this a couple of weeks ago and uh, <coughs> I've published, <coughs> published a couple articles on it. Well, on a new channel, unless you give your phone number to Google or to YouTube, you can't put a link in the description of your uh, channel. Uh, there's a couple different ways to become it's not verified, but there's an, there, you basically become, you know, trusted enough to put links in. And so I think that's, that is super interesting. That's not anything that there's a law about. It's something that YouTube is trying to do to protect its platform. So what I'm, what I'm saying is maybe there's negative impacts to needing to provide actual age verification, like a scan of a, of an ID or other government, um, government ID, like a driver's license. But also maybe that's, not maybe that has been a significant part of the problem that we've seen with anonymous accounts, with bot accounts and uh, with the weaponization of social media. So if, if that's impacted because of these laws, then it would be uh, an unintended consequence. But I think what we're going to have happen is the federal government's going to pass a law because that tends to happen in situations like this. When you've got fragmentation, you've got states doing all kinds of things. And these companies are global, international, you know, multi multinational or, uh, companies and, and organizations. And so the burdens of needing to comply with 50 different state laws uh, regarding how you design your app and what you require of users, et cetera, et cetera, I think we're going to see some federal legislation um, on this that either may, uh, you know, leave the door open to say you don't have to have this kind of verification or, or something that might require it. Um, but I don't think that, I mean, of course, that assumes Congress will be able to agree on it too, but it's, I don't think it's sustainable for every state to have its own nuanced laws with regard to how minors are going to be on social media. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I, it's, it's an interesting time. And I'd be the first to say that I do think we need to have several critical conversations about what social media does to kids and mental health. I also think that parents need to be more informed and, and more part of the decision-making matrix, but I also think we need to be careful here because, um, you know, uh, these social media platforms, for better or for worse, are a serious part of the news. They're an incredible part of our connections. And, you know, like Dr. Fryer and I like to talk about a lot. I mean, you know, we're we're friends, good friends. Right. I mean, we spend an hour together each week talking through stuff. Right. And um uh, 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 maintain a friendship because of social media. That wouldn't exist because of that. We had no reason to be on each other's radar except for that. And I think that that, and, and, and there are plenty of folks that I maintain good professional and personal relationships with because of social media. That can be true of our kids as well. But I think we need to be really um, cognizant of the fact that some regulation would be welcome and required. And I'm, I'm, 
I don't know. I'm I'm not for banning TikTok from the standpoint of a, a blanket ban. I would love it if we pass better privacy laws in the United States and apply mm-hmm. them to all platforms. I would yeah. like it if we pass better uh, data security laws and apply them to all platforms. I would like to 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 uh, pass uh, accountability and um, um, uh, transparency laws for social media companies and, and apply them to all of, of these companies. But I think these smaller pieces here may be leading us to that, but, but I'm not going to be satisfied until that's really our larger strategy. A few minutes ago, Betsy uh, Springer pointed out in the chat that her, uh, one of her kids had had a Facebook account early to play an interactive game and they were reported and shut down. So yeah, this is going to have an impact for us in the classroom. And if you haven't discussed the Utah social media law with your students yet, I think that's a great topic. It's going to take a longer period of time. I think it's a full year before that takes effect, but this Arkansas law talks about September. So this will be in the new school year. Um, and these are, it can be a, a catalyst for some good conversations because social media is very powerful. Probably most of the folks watching this show or listening to the podcast, you know, have watched the social dilemma and before the social dilemma as well, there's a lot of established research indicating just how addictive social media is. And that's not just true for, for, for young people. Uh, let me do one quick article and we got to do AI cause we're, uh, we're going to be about 40, <laughs> 45 minutes in the show. This is kind of a, I don't, I almost didn't think this is a real article because it just, this sounds dystopian as if we didn't have enough. Okay. This is Ars Technica. Get ready for spot and the robo, uh, robocop. Uh, this is, uh, April 12th. NYPD robocops hulking 400 pound robots will start patrolling New York City. So a few years ago, uh, New York City had utilized a couple of the spot surveillance robot dogs. Um, there were a lot of civil liberties groups that, you know, got upset about this. And so they discontinued it. Well, they're going to get two more of those, but they're also getting these 400 pound robots that don't have limbs, but, you know, can see both visually and infrared. They can check license plates. They say they're not going to be using the facial recognition, but they can. Uh, they've gotten some headlines before for driving into a pond and running over children. Um, but they are going to basically be used to um, report and surveil. And so these are surveillance robots. The spot dogs from Boston Dynamics are going to be used basically like um, sort of in hostage and, and hazardous material inspection bombs uh, or bomb threats, high risk incidents. But I'm going to share this with my kids. You know, Boston Dynamics robotic videos are are definitely some of the most engaging to get folks thinking about ro- robots and what robots can do. Um, there also is definitely a bit of a of an eerie side to this. Um, the current chief of the New York uh, PD. Um, described himself when he was running as a computer geek. Well, actually, and he's the mayor. Okay, so he was he was the former chief of the of the police force, and now he's the mayor, and so he's bringing this about. So, Jason, are you going to be lobbying for Missoula to have 400-pound robots patrolling in your alley soon to protect your dumpster? I saw that photo, and it just looked terrifying, right? Like, and I, you mentioned the word dystopian. I, I don't think that it's, it's, it's that far from, from, from the, the truth there. And yeah, I, I find it disturbing. I would go as far as saying that, um, you know, it, it, robots are a part of our future. I, I think it, it would be pretty silly to say otherwise. We should maybe stop making them look like terrifying animals. Hey, maybe just me. Maybe so. Maybe so. 
All right. Uh, how about some AI news? Do we have any of that this week? Oh, there's so much of it. And um, and we're not going to get to to much of this this week. Let me see if I can. Uh... Well, we've got 15 minutes, so we yeah, can that's get, true. get a few. Um, so let me let me talk talk about. Uh, I I do want to start off with an older link uh, that I had found that I did read the report. Uh, this the report is called Jobs Lost, Jobs Gain: What the Future of Work Will Mean for Job Skills and Wages, and this is from 2017, right? So um, this is this is not recent, and I not that I distrust. Um, uh, 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 things written before the, the, the quick rise of generative AI. What I would say is that it, it just makes the conversation a little more rich. But this particular report, which is done by, uh, the McKinsey and Company Global Institute, is that it takes a look at what AI is going to do in regards to jobs. And of course, that is one of the things that, that, uh, I think we're all, maybe not worried about uh, as much as are super interested in. And I'm sure there are some people that, that worry uh, about this, but they try to uh, kind of take a look at um, uh, uh, the notion of where things were likely to happen um, uh, job wise based on different industries. And they looked at uh, countries like China, Germany, India, Japan, Mexico, and the United States. And it, uh, 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 try to look at what they thought would happen to these jobs at the midpoint of automation, where there'd be more or less of them. Now, here's where I think um, the report may not totally get the generative AI piece of this. One of the things they look at is creatives, right? And so that includes artists, designers, entertainers, and media workers. And they said that in Japan, it would go down, the job demand would go down by 4%, but in the United States, it would be up 8%, in China, up 85%, in India, up 58%, in Mexico, up 28%. Um, my guess is, is that that doesn't really understand what, what AI is going to do to creative arts. And if you need any evidence of that, um, you know, look at the panic that's going on right now on social media uh, regarding um uh, what AI is going to do and, and, uh, uh, claims that, you know, wide swaths of, of, of creative jobs will go away. But the part that I thought was super interesting, um, about this was that, uh, there would be an increase in demand for teachers in, um, most countries, the, the one with exception was Japan. Um, but, uh, in the United States, there'd be a 9% uh, uh, increase in labor demand at the midpoint of automation. And one of the points that I try to keep making is that I have no doubt that a lot of things about teaching and learning may change in the, the era of, of generative AI. But let's make no mistake that generative AI, um, is, is, it could be a real superpower, but that doesn't mean it can replace the, the, what I think is somewhat human, uh, 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 element of teaching. And I, in the end, uh, teaching is not dissemination of information. We've had dissemination of information in our world for, for, you know, literally, uh, many hundreds of years. You can go back to the evolution of the printing press, um, and, and the revolution that that created in putting more information in more people's hands. Just because it's at your fingertips as opposed to being in a library doesn't necessarily mean that, um, uh, uh, you know, it, it's going to replace the human element of this. 
And so uh, I thought that report was interesting. I also think, too, that as, as I've been trying to remind teacher groups and um, I suddenly find myself uh, in um, a lot of discussions uh, uh, regionally and nationally about AI. I'm doing a webinar tomorrow with the Digital Learning Collaborative that I mentioned last week on the show. I'm doing another webinar next week for teachers in southeastern Montana. Um, I'm also going to, uh, I, I've booked a couple of, of, of dates in June with the school district in Montana. I'll work with both administrators and teachers on broad, broad stroke, uh, uh, pictures of AI. But the bottom line is that, um, we are in an era where we have to keep a close eye on this, but let's not just assume that our jobs are, are going to go away. They're going to change for almost certain, but, but going away, I think is a stronger piece of this. Definitely. Uh, <laughs> we'll do one more follow-up. Uh, dun, dun, dun. PBS joins NPR, quitting Twitter over state-backed label. Oh wow, that's yeah. So again, well, if it's if it's a tipping point, I know. I mean, this could be positive. We've had millions and millions of people move to Mastodon. I don't know. I don't know if this will be a tipping point or not, but I I don't think this is a bad thing. I think it's a it's a stand for ethics and for values. Um, it'll be interesting to see if anybody else follows suit. Yep, absolutely. All right, what else on the AI front? Well, I want to share a couple podcasts that I heard in the last week that I think would be worth your time, and they're both kind of different pieces. Um, the first one is this week's Hard Fork, which is starting to turn into a must-listen uh, for, 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 for the host of this podcast. But um, great, great podcast. Kevin Ruse uh, does a great job every week of of planning out uh, an interesting agenda. And, and last week... Uh, 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 hard fork focused on what they called an AI vibe check with um, uh, with Urza Klein and longtime uh, 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 commentator in this space and and I, I really enjoyed the interview and one of the things that I think I, I I think Wes and I are both fundamentally optimists is is what I would say in that we've always believed that if we do it right, all these wonderful technologies can really have a positive impact on classrooms. It's not like we hide the potential of of uh, uh, the dangers or the issues with the technology, but I think we both really want these technologies to fundamentally work, right, and to be a good positive piece. But don't diminish the 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 notion that there is an extraordinary amount of risk that comes with artificial intelligence and we've had you know decades and decades and de decades of both theoretical and fictional accounts of what uh, AI that takes over might look like and what a terrible world it might be if if you know everything turns into like a worldwide skynet and um uh, 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 Ezra Klein does a good job of talking about that. And he mentions, um, you know, he, he's talks with several, uh, engineers and, and founders and, um, other people in this space that will all admit to you directly that, you know, they have concerns about what happens if, um, you know, if, if this technology gets out of control and we start to allow it to control, you know, things in the world. And remember the, you know, ChatGPT, OpenAI CEO, uh, Sam Altman carries a doomsday backpack with him so he can shut the servers down if it ever gets out of control. Um, then the other podcast I want to share was from In Machines We Trust. That's an MIT podcast, excellent podcast. And it's, it's talking about creativity and, um, 
uh, th- this particular episode uh, uh, is really interesting because it it talks to an Adobe person um, and uh, 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 kind of talks about where Adobe's going with this technology. And of course, it's it's more uh, what Adobe's doing is more nuanced than what like Midjourney is doing. Midjourney is allowing you to g- generate an image with a prompt. Adobe's building technology that is, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, um, uh, 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 trying to give AI a powers to creators so they can make them even yeah. more powerful in the way they evolve uh, yeah. uh, images, video, Emp- an empowering uh, yeah. effort for that's a great that's creators. a great word for it. Yeah. Um, and then it also gets into, they talk to a, a, a startup founder that is trying to work on a music AI platform that instead of just taking all music ever and generating music from it, which he claims is an intellectual property and, and, and copyright nightmare, instead trying to teach the AI the generalities of music theory and then feeding it more and more and more technical and musical information about things like instruments, voices, etc. And then coming up with, for lack of a better way of putting it, a, a more uh, mindful AI that, that doesn't, you know, steal, uh, 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 doesn't steal from other creators. And the one question that I have about this, and you may have some insights here, Dr. Fryer, but um, like, I get it that creatives are mad because, you know, it, it, it's not just that it, it's, it's so powerful and functional. It's that it's powerful and functional in part because it has taken information, right? Uh, images, you know, millions, billions of, 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 of text pages, millions, billions of images and uses that to inform the way it does things. And that, you know, in a lot of cases, it may copy a style or maybe even generate an image that looks awfully like something that's already existed in the world. And the bottom line is that, um, uh, uh, I, I don't know how else to put this, but I, I, I'm not sure if that's all that different from the creative process with non, um, uh, uh, you know, non AI creators because Painters do not, uh, actually, most painters don't, don't get born with their own vision of things. They're inspired by other artists, right? And I think about this, this video when, uh, Ringo Starr was put in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and they brought in a bunch of drummers, right? Uh, that were talking about Ringo Starr's style. And one of them was talking about, um, you know, like they would have producers say, you know, do it like Ringo. It's a Ringo thing. It's a Ringo style. And he did kind of a, um, uh, uh, rhythmically sloppy, but wonderful, creative, uh, uh, musical piece, but that, you know, that drummers would copy Ringo style. And it just seems like, you know, Ringo, Ringo Starr's not running around suing people because, it kind of sounds like Ringo because the way he, he, you know, uses left hand and his right hand. But I have to wonder, you know, we're just drawing some interesting lines here that I'm not sure necessarily uh, bring insight. That is an absolutely fascinating question. In addition to, to rethinking assessment in our classrooms, we should be thinking about creativity. And number one, let's think about how many creative challenges and tasks we are actually giving students and, and how much, you know, tend to be more scripted or regurgitative or just like, Hey, here's the answer. And you know, everyone's going to have the same answer. 
I, we had a candidate tonight that we interviewed uh, for a position at school, and he just shared the Cortex podcast on Relay FM. Have you heard of this one, Jason? No. Okay, so I'll drop this in, and I'm going to put it in the, in the links. Um, CGP Gray, who's a YouTuber, and I've seen some of his stuff uh, and shared that, and then Mike Hurley do this Cortex podcast. This was from October 19th, so this was a little bit before all of AI kind of took over the world. Um, and the title of their episode was AI art will make marionettes of its all before it destroys the world. But literally as I was coming, driving in my driveway this evening from dinner, that was the question that they were asking. And, and, um, uh, one of them was arguing kind of the counterpoint to that, that they, he thought that it was different. I mean, the capacity of these AI systems is vastly today greater than any human being. You know, we each have some capacity to, ingest media in all forms and text and in i mean depending on if if we have different disabilities but you know assuming we're able to to see and hear and uh we can read i mean we can bring a lot of things into our brains but still there's a limit to how many days uh we you know how many hours in the day and and how many how much time we can dedicate to this and to think that ai systems don't have that i don't know exactly where they were coming from I haven't listened to that whole show yet, but I think it's just that it's not equal footing, right? We're not on equal footing with these AIs when it comes to their capacity to ingest media and to use media and to remix media. But from a purely definitional standpoint, if you have watched any Creative Commons videos over the years or whatever, remix culture, and there's a lot of really great uh, videos about creativity and sharing you know, remix is fundamentally taking the ideas of others and being able to create a new synthesis. It's Hegelian, if you want to be philosophical about it. And so I think that um, we ought to talk about this because there's there's disagreement about this. It's it's pretty fascinating. Um, and it's also going to have, and it is already having very real impacts in the world. So uh, Betsy in the comments here a little while ago said that she saw a demo um, on tech TV, I guess that's probably what TT is that Canva uses AI to edit images. Uh, she showed an example and then she said she just tried it. It's magic edit. And Betsy, I would say we have one of the number one educational advocates for the use of Canva right here on the show. It's Dr. Knifer. So he's been using those features. Well, for a while. and I think we posted the video a couple of weeks ago, but the new stuff in Canva is unfreaking real. And, um, and it's exactly that kind of stuff, right? Like, and, and in those cases, you know, I don't know. Um, I, I, I heard a speaker the other day talk about that, you know, one of the ways that we can get out of, 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 you know, copyright problems is to generate images instead. And, um, you know, there, there's, there's so much free pictures and media anymore that I don't think that's really as much of a concern as it was, say, like 10 years ago. But I love the notion that, you can use Canva to modify your images to your heart's content. And that's an exactly an example of this, that, you know, I'm a very sloppy Photoshopper, but I've taken, um, you know, opportunities in the past to modify my headshot a little bit to, you know, uh, a little pinch here and a little nudge there kind of a deal. But um, what Canva is able to do in its image, image manipulation is absolutely stunning. And, and I love it. And it's a smart set of tools. It's still the best $10 I spend every single month. I, I use it uh, probably hours a day between my work account and my personal account and probably five hours a week now outside of work. So there you have it, folks. Dr. Neifer continues to extol the power of Canva and I, Wes Fryer, who fancy myself to be uh, a bit of a media creator. 
have not used it hardly at all, and I've got to. So I think this will be yet another area, Dr. Neifer, where you will you will push my my not only my thinking but my um, behavior and maybe even my subscriptions forward. So that's uh, that's a good thing. Hey, I think you need to do a quick geek of the week. So how about if I go first? Sure. All right, because it is the top of the hour. All right, I'm going to overshare. Uh, the last Soviet. Have you have I talked about this? Have you listened to this one, Jason? Uh, no. All right. So my wife is a huge space geek. Um, and there was one, oh, I don't remember the name of it, but it was about like the untold history of the space program in the United States. I'll, I'll have to figure out what that one was, but this is the last Soviet. Um, so <laughs> the NSYNC superstar Lance Bass actually trained as a cosmonaut along with some others to go up into space. Uh, but he didn't end up going. But he tells the story of the last cosmonaut who was literally stranded um, above the Mir space station when the Soviet Union collapsed and they couldn't bring him back. And so I've just listened to two episodes, but it is a fantastic podcast. Um, in addition to Jason's webinar, which I, well, I didn't, we haven't published the show yet from uh, last week, but you can get it in the show notes. Our, um, there is a wonderful series that just kicked off yesterday by the Media Education Lab, which is Renee Hobbs' group uh, focused on digital media literacy, and it's called AI in the Classroom. Uh, and if you know Joyce Valenza, look, anytime you can hang around with Joyce, you're going to learn all kinds of stuff. And this, just the things that she shared as a participant in this was great. Um, and so this is going to be, I think, an every two-week uh, free uh, uh, series that you can join. And then lastly, I uh, consumed this media over the weekend um, Amy Webb is one of my favorite futurists. Have you watched any of Amy's uh, South by Southwest stuff in the past, Jason? Oh, okay. This is fantastic. And it's all about AI almost entirely. Um, she has an institute that she leads called the uh, Future Today Institute. And so uh, kind of like you for NCCE will in the past, I mean, as the keynote speaker of this, there were a few, few, uh, fewer uh, number of workshops that you did, but you've kind of, I think, used that as a time to reboot your presentations. And that's what she does too. And she comes out with this huge report. And so she has um, released the video. And I mean, there's just some pretty, maybe we can talk about it next week, but it's, she says the internet as we know it is is really over, and we're reaching some, we're going to reach an inflection point with with AI and the and the data collection and the ways in which these AIs are going to uh, transform society. It is going to require upskilling or, or or retooling for not just students that are in school, but for all of us. And it just is some very some great scenarios that she plays through, and she speaks to regulation and a whole lot of things. So totally recommend that Amy Webb South by Southwest 2023. Presentation on emerging tech. Well, I'm going to share an AI tool tonight. Um, I will tell Shocking. you that yeah, there's a real shocker. Um, and this is an example. I mean, there are new tools being released. Um, I think they're increasing in pace. Uh, I, I've seen references to hundreds of new tools this week, uh, each week. I would, wouldn't doubt if they're up to a thousand. But I was... Um, uh, surfing through the chat GPT Reddit. And one of the things that I do not like about the current state of, of uh, things like chat GPT is the shockingly low limit of, of input and output. Now and, it didn't, didn't have that originally. No, they, no. Imposed and, that. and, um, and apparently you can build your own app. And at some point I think I might, I mean, I, I'm, I, I don't think it's something that I'm going to like release or anything, but I would like to be able to access the API and, and be able to do at least much larger inputs and outputs. But um, I did see a reference to something called memoable, which is M E M O A B L E dot app. 
And it's a free tool. I think the guy's just playing with it. I'm pretty sure that he'll get rid of it at some point, but it's got a really interesting premise to it. Um, you can uh, create what, what he calls a notebook and paste as much text as you want in there. So as an example of this, I took an open, openly licensed U.S. history textbook and its chapter on what it called Life in Industrial America. You paste the text in, and then it bases all of your chat back and forth on that text only. So not only will it create an outline or give you a summary, you could ask it questions about the text, and it'll tell you answers to it. Um, and it's pretty interesting. It, it, it's not quite as functional, I think, as it could be. So, for example, when I said, you know, quiz me on this, it did give me five questions, but it didn't actually quiz me. It just gave me five questions for me to think about. But I think it's an example of where some of these really powerful apps will come from that it's not trying to take the internet and do things with it. It's taking the text that you're directing it to, uh, and then, and then allow you to interact with it in, in, in the large language model way. I don't know if I shared this on the podcast. I have not played with it as much as I need to, but I was accepted into the early uh, beta program for Bard, uh, inside Gmail, Google Calendar. And again, thinking about you, our data, your data, and then what you would be able to do with these AI tools using conversational English uh, or just conversational language. <laughs> I know, totally. I, I couldn't agree more. All right. Well, Dr. Neifer, where can folks connect with you? Well, uh, probably the best place to still find me is Twitter, uh, where I'm at Tech Savvy Teach. And at some point, I'm going to get 20 or 30 minutes to sit down and pop up a website again. So um, uh, uh, Neifer.com is where I'm, I'm typically at. But um, I think I'm going to need to spend a, a quality Saturday uh, figuring that out. And you, sir? I am at uh, Twitter at W Fryer. Mastodon is W Fryer at Mastodon.cloud, but you can find all my links, including my cooking ones, which are so much fun uh, at westfriar.com slash after. This has been the EdTech Situation Room after a very uh, stumbling introduction, um, episode 289 for April 12th. We encourage you to subscribe to our Substack. Go to edtechsr.com where you can find small uh, 32 kilobit MP3 audio versions, as well as compressed 100 and so megabyte video versions. But you can always find these on YouTube as well as Facebook. We appreciate any podcast recommendations. We usually don't ask for those, but hey, if you want to write us a review, uh, give us a five star rating. Hey, that'd be great uh, because <clears throat> word of mouth and social media, it changes lives, right? Because we're able to intersect with new ideas, serve as media filters for each other, and not only provide some possible engaging ways to uh, have a commute or spend a Wednesday evening, as we hope you'll do live with us, as Betsy did tonight. Thanks for joining us. Uh, it's also just a great way to continue our professional learning. So until next time, we encourage you to stay savvy, stay safe. And remember, if you're looking for a gift for Dr. Neifer, he's always looking for more books to add to his stack. <laughs> Good night.